Welcome to the first episode in a brand new season of Planet Possible. We're back with a new name, fresh topics to discuss and a fantastic lineup of guests. So I'm delighted that you're joining us. Over the season, we're going to get into the detail behind the really big issues that are critical to the way we manage our water and environment. You'll hear directly from leading figures across the sector and from around the world and practitioners who are making a difference every day through their work. We've also got a new season sponsor to enable us to bring Planet Possible to you. You'll hear a little bit more about them later, but for now, a huge thanks to Binnies for sponsoring season three. I'm Nikki Roach, and alongside being a passionate advocate for all things water and environment, I'm a fellow of SIWEM. If you're new to the pod, SIWEM is the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management. Our members in over 90 countries are professionals with a breadth and depth of expertise in the topics that are shaping the future of our planet. Across the next six episodes, we'll be getting into the detail of those topics, seeking out the evidence-led views and authentic opinions to help us better understand what's possible for the planet. So let's get started. In today's episode, we're exploring the health of our rivers, and we've got a great interview coming up. To help unpick this topic, I'm joined by a co-host that will be a familiar voice to regular listeners, SIWEM's Director of Policy, Alistair Chisholm. I should say, after two seasons of the pod, for the very first time, we're actually recording in person. Al and I are both in London today, so this should be interesting. It's very strange, I have to say. <laughs> it it's, is. It's lovely, it? though. So Al and I are going to listen to our guest interview together, and then we'll discuss our reflections. Our guest interview today is with two people whose roles have a significant impact on the health of our rivers here in England specifically. We'll hear from the Right Honourable Philip Dunn MP, Member of Parliament for Ludlow in Shropshire. He's also the chair of the Environmental Audit Committee and he's focused on water quality issues since introducing a private members bill in January 2020, much of which then got taken forward into the Environment Act. And joining Philip in our discussion is Ian McCauley. Ian's the chief exec of Southern Water and Ian's a civil and environmental engineer, an ICE fellow and a member of SIWEM. And he's also a member of the Scottish Government's 2020 Climate Change Board. And I was particularly interested to hear how Ian feels being a CEO in the spotlight for healthy rivers currently. It's, um, it's a double-edged sword. To a large degree, I welcome this changed relationship with water in the UK because for far too many years, we have simply not had it. Uh, we just don't have that symbiotic relationship. What changed it? I think that was part of it. Microplastics have changed that relationship as well. You know, Social media has changed it. Uh, so all of these things are bringing to the fore the realisation that the systems that we have designed in the past the system of systems that we operate at the present moment in time, are not resilient for the future. So, Al, before we head to our guest interview, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the state of our rivers in the UK currently. It's not good, is it, really? We have 14% of rivers in England Mm -hmm. in good ecological status, and that's defined under the European Water Framework Directive, and 0% of our rivers, none of them, in good chemical status. There are pockets of really quite pristine river, but they're a rarity. There's really three big areas where we're seeing pollution. Agriculture, so all of the runoff that comes from fields, from livestock, pesticides and and fertilisers that are put on land, when it rains heavily, that washes off into rivers. Give or take, that's about a third of of the sources of Mm -hmm. pollution. Similar kind of proportion we're seeing pollution from the water industry some of the stuff that's really been making headlines recently so not to put too fine a point on it quite a lot of poo also we've got urban diffuse runoff so all kinds of rubbish gets washed off of hard surfaces in our towns and cities and there's quite a few areas where that urban diffuse pollution 
links up with the water industry stuff. And particularly if you get into the historic centres of, of towns and cities, because we have combined sewer networks. If it rains too hard, when that stuff reaches the sewage treatment works, that can get overwhelmed. There needs to be an overflow somewhere, and that's when you get this pollution of the, of the rivers. Sometimes those overflows are not happening when they, it was designed for them to happen, which is in times of really high flow where a lot of that pollution load would get diluted. Now we're starting to see them overflow in times of dry flow, not even when it's raining at all. That's really bad. And the best way to manage these things is at their source. So the more we can chip away, the less we have to invest in really carbon intensive treatment solutions. So that's got to be better for the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a really great summary, I guess, of how we've ended up to a degree where we are. Shall we listen to Philip and Ian and hear their thoughts? Let's. Okay, here's a big interview. A huge welcome to Ian McCauley and Philip Dunn MP. It's great to have you join us, guys. Thanks very much, Nikki. Good to see you, Ian. And you too, Philip. So on our first episode of the new season, we're talking about a topic that's certainly been in the headlines over recent months, but isn't really a new issue. We're thinking about the health of our rivers and the coastal waters that they feed in this episode. And so can I start by asking you both how you define healthy rivers? Maybe, Ian, if I come to you first. Healthy is quite a, a broad ranging term. Uh, so for me, I think we have to look at it sort of generally and specifically because it can mean different things in different places. Uh, but healthy overall means that um, rivers can sustain the life that they hold, for example. Um, they can offer amenity value where that's appropriate. Sometimes it's not always appropriate for, for human beings. Uh, the flora and fauna uh, are thriving, not threatened. And also as we move to coastal waters, we, you know, we have a different representation, but uh, equally important. So we have things like bathing water quality for the coast. We've had that for a very long time, so we're not having that debate down there. But we support the amenity value. So it's all of those things in general. Uh, and then when we look at locations, it's about being very specific about what requires to be done to define health and to promote it as well. And Philip, if I asked you the same question, what would your what would your approach be? Well, I think Ian's given a very good answer to the sort of some of the technical challenges. I come at this not as an engineer, but as an amateur, actually as an amateur angler. I regard rivers as healthy if they're sustaining the kind of aquatic species, not just fish, but including fish and insects that they thrive on, as well as the, the plant life that we you know, have all got used to seeing as we've grown up around, among rivers. I would say that an unhealthy river is one which has either an excessive amount of bad stuff in it, so it's either discoloured or there's a significant amount of weed growing within the river. But I agree with Ian that in many respects, most of us human beings tend to see the river as a place for our amenity as well as the contribution it plays to nature. And therefore, I think you know, around the coast, we've done really good work in getting bathing water quality status along many of our beaches over the last few decades. And we need to adopt a similar approach, I think, to our inland waterways. Do you think that we understand enough about the health of our rivers at the moment? Do we know enough about where we are at the moment to be able to make that leap? I don't think that the public really does know. I think you can tell when you look at a heavily polluted waterway that you don't want to go in it. But generally, we assume that it's going to be okay to enter whether you're swimming or fishing or whatever it is you're doing. And I think one of the things that the Environment Act is going to require in legislation now is for monitoring 
on a wholly new level of water quality in our rivers. And when that information becomes available to the public, which it will do in close to real time once the monitors have been installed, and we're talking you know, tens of thousands of monitors being installed in our rivers around every outflow from a water company's sewage works or overflow pipe. Once that information's in the public domain, I think it will transform people's understanding of the condition of water but also their sort of enthusiasm for getting involved in getting it better. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I agree with that as well. I think um, the, the short answer is, do we have enough information? And we talked a lot about this at the Environmental Audit Committee. The report mentioned that you know, there's three pathways that are the major uh, contributors to health of water declining, you know, being the, the, the water industry stuff that Philip talks about, agriculture and highways. Uh, and they were really succinctly summed up at the end of the, the audit committee, which tells us where we have to look and gather information. So I'd be quite clear and say, no, we haven't got enough information yet. We need to use technology better. We need to use citizen science better as well. And I always use the phrase, I think I said it to you, Philip, many times, that measure what matters because what gets measured gets actioned. Um, so I think we have a way to go. Even in the bathing waters on the coast, um, we don't do it in real time. Good news is we're just starting to put those monitors in the last few weeks. Um, so that will make some progress because that's what people really want to know in real time. What is the water quality like? There's another important distinction that perhaps I forgot to mention, Philip, that you know, rivers are a source of drinking water as well, uh, in many cases, as are the aquifers. And that's incredibly important. We tend to forget that in the UK. You know, I, I have the benefit of having lived and worked all around the world. But you know, water is our most basic food. And we need to make sure that we have A, ample amount as well, uh, and B, it has to be the right quality. So it's, a, it's doubly important from that perspective to make sure that we have that as well. And we, tend to, we tend to forget about drinking water. We talk about you know, water for agri water and production of food, but it is the water industry in the UK is the biggest food producer bar none. Uh, and therefore, we have to be looking at water quality from that perspective as well, because that's very important. And then it takes you to another angle of health for me, which is abstraction and abstraction regimes. You know, we can damage health of rivers by over-abstracting. So we need to make sure that all the various abstractors, we're measuring that as well to make sure that we balance in times of drought and in times of plenty, uh, that we're managing the health of the river from that quantity and quality perspective as well, I think is quite important for us all, Philip. I think it's a good point you're making, Ian, and of course... It's different depending on where you are in the country. So you're along the south coast of England. I'm on the, the west border between England and Wales. We tend to have quite a lot more rain falling out of the sky in the west side of the country than we do in the east or the south. So drought is not really something that happens uh, very often around uh, the area that I represent. But flooding does. And I think it's trying to find both the infrastructure to ensure that we've got plentiful supplies of drinking water right across the UK, balanced against the, the needs to ensure that we protect people's property from flooding events. And we just had them, I've just had been in my constituency seeing, meeting people who've been cleaning up their houses the third year in a row from flooding of the River Severn around this time of the year. And, it, and it's, you know, it's just very, very challenging devastating thing to have to cope with. It really brings it home to me as well. You know, I, I hollowed in my homeland last summer and would you believe that Scotland was having significant problems with water supply because it had been so dry. You know, and with climate change, we are starting to introduce this additional parameter to water quality. Certainly where I was driving up through the borders of Scotland, the West Coast, 
there were reservoirs empty that I had never seen empty before. And yet, at the same time, just a few months later, we're having Edinburgh flooded. We're having London flooded three times. So I think climate change is, is really something that we have to take into account when we think about how we're going to adapt to water quality as well. I also lived in Colorado, which is now in a 120-year drought, I believe it is. That old adage, there's, there's no new water in the world, it's the same water that dinosaurs drank. It's just moving around the world in different ways now and landing in different places at different times and, and in different intensities. To me, it's an enormous challenge and one that we have to embrace. As Philip says, we've got to look at floods and drought and scarcity all at the same time. It feels like a topic that's really captured, certainly here in the UK, the public's imagination. And Ian, from your perspective, I would imagine... You feel it directly from your customers, I would imagine, as well as stakeholder groups. So how does it feel as chief exec of Southern Water to be in, in the spotlight, I suppose, really, for this particular topic at the moment? It's um, it's double-edged sword. To a large degree, I welcome this changed relationship with water in the UK because for far too many years, we have simply not had it. Uh, we just don't have that symbiotic relationship. What changed it? I think that was part of it, uh, the WWF element. But I think also you look to eutrophication of water bodies and the amount of chemicals that we've been putting onto land for 100 years is now accumulating in a system of systems that is causing us problems with producing portable water. Microplastics have changed that relationship as well. You know, Social media has changed it. Uh, so all of these things are bringing to the fore the realisation that the systems that we have designed in the past, the system of systems that we operate at the present moment in time, are not resilient for the future. It's a very different future that we face into. Long-term annual average rainfall, for example, um, we've seen all the records broken in the last 10 years, continuously. But if we put those records into a 50-year time series, then it dilutes the very significant event of recent years, gets diluted. We have to think about redesigning that system. We have this bizarre thing in housing where 80% of the housing stock, which will exist in 2050, has already been built. And it's been built inefficiently. We didn't think about water in the way we think about it now. So I actually, you know, I've said, had this discussion, Philip, and I've talked about it quite a bit down in Brighton recently of, actually, I don't see new housing so much as the problem as it should be the exemplar. You know, so we should be able to look at new housing development and say there's no surface water connection whatsoever. It's designed to 100 litres per head per day. It doesn't put a burden on the system. Actually, in exactly the same way as energy, it's the existing housing stock. We have paved over. We don't farm the way we used to farm. Soil health indexes has decreased dramatically over, over the years. We need to rethink all of these things. And we need to look at highways as well. So we've seen that surface water separation... Um, actually affords a really good way of managing all the systems. So we've identified an area where if we can take 40% of highway drainage out of the combined sewer system, actually we can eliminate the storm overflows and at the same time create more hydraulic capacity for new housing growth. Um, that's a very virtuous way of looking at it. It's not how the systems work at the present moment in time, but we need to move to it. There needs to be a, a reimagining and a redesign of how, how we deal with these things. And that Victorian ethos of how you designed combined sewers, it was very important in the old days to have flushing systems from rainfall. But actually with population growth and density, it's not as important. So 
Redesigning that system of systems now, it's in its entirety, how we farm, how we apply fertiliser to soil, how we manage soil health index. I actually think we should be paying farmers to manage water, to farm water, both in terms of flooding and availability, because they're good at it. Had some really good discussions with some local farmers uh, in Hampshire just last week on that basis. We should be looking at getting as much surface water out of the systems as we possibly can and managing that in a different way, potentially for getting us through the drought periods in terms of how we store it. And we should be designing and looking at how we retrofit housing, designing, as we see in other countries around the world, porous roads, you know, making sure that we get as much water out of the system. And by doing it that way, the most exciting thing of all is it looks as if there's a way to do it cost-effectively, to do it environmentally effectively, uh, and to make a difference quite quickly. And I think that's the challenge that sits in front of us, Philip. I think we've, we've talked about that many times. We, we've got to wrestle with that challenge now and try to move at pace. Ian's touched on a whole host of issues there, which just show how innovative this sector is and is going to be. I think we're, we're looking at, the, at a real inflection point and there are lots of innovations happening in you know, reducing leakage with new systems, looking at how we work together more holistically across with other land users so that we we manage our water in a, a way that we haven't really innovated to the same extent since the days of Bazalgette. You know, we have in the UK, because we've always had this view that water was plentiful, we, we've always defined water more in the concept of taps and toilets and water utilities. And actually, I think what we're talking about here is a phrase I use often, we are trying to redesign systems for the utility of water, the value that we can have from it and, and, and afford it its proper value. As I said, water is a food that's so little heard and so little talked about. If we don't have it, then society comes to a halt very quickly. As I've seen in many other countries I've worked in around the world, we are staring hard at the water-energy agri-nexus and trying to work out how to deal with it. And the one bit that gets talked about last in my my experience is water we talk about energy we talk about agri but water just gets taken for granted and i think as phillips just said we're past that point we have to look at it now from an investment perspective as well rather than cost perspective it's part of the equation but i use the the, the phrase that values benefits over investment and a simple element of that if i look to the places that i live the, the urban wastewater treatment directive and the creation of I know Philip said we hadn't invested much money in wastewater, but there have been many billions of pounds invested to bring bathing waters from what was the dirty man of Europe to excellent water quality standard. And in our region, we have 83 bathing waters, uh, 60 at excellent this year, 20 at good and only three at sufficient. So that's a, it's a massive difference and it costs money. But uh, what I've come to appreciate is it brings in a huge amount of revenue in terms of tourism. So it brings about £1.2 billion a year into the region that I live in. Um, So actually, if you looked at it from that investment perspective, you get quite a good return on investment for managing water as a a utility perspective, rather than just managing it from a water utility perspective. I don't know if that makes absolute sense, but um, it's kind of a, again, it's turning on its head, as Philip says, of thinking about it in different ways. Our season sponsors for Planet Possible are Binnies, who recognise the opportunity that bringing together a breadth of professions creates to be truly amazing. Their engineers, scientists, constructors and environmental professionals collaborate to drive innovation and Binnies, like Simon, believe that podcasts are a fantastic way to showcase some of the role models, 
global best practice and innovation that we have across the water and environment sector. We're grateful to Binnies for their support as it enables us to bring Planet Possible to you this season. I mean, you've talked both of you about system redesign and about the interplay and as a former sludge manager i should say philip i love the fact that we're talking about biosolids here as well you're absolutely right there's a kind of circularity to all of these systems that we're talking about and i think to some degree the water sector's harnessing some of that already through things like anaerobic digestion and that's happening which is great but when you talk about system redesign at the scale that you've just alluded to both of you that feels quite daunting I think from where I'm sitting and and we've got water companies that are responsible for bits of that system we've got environmental regulators we've got economic regulators we've got private landowners it's a complicated picture I'm not trying to sound pessimistic but I'm really interested in both of your views on what needs to happen to bring about some of those quite significant changes that you've talked about. Well, if I have a go first, Ian, I think on I mean, land use, we're at a particularly unusual juncture. It's the first time in 40 years that we can start to design our own support mechanisms for farmers and looking at ways in which uh, we integrate looking after water as well as land. We are setting up new land use support mechanisms because we're looking at new ways of both rewarding good and potentially penalising bad carbon behaviour. You know, a lot of companies, and not just water companies, but a lot of other companies, are looking towards nature as a way in which they can you know, offset some of the carbon emissions that they're generating. And there's a real opportunity here for water to play a big part in that. And I know many of the water companies are being, you know, they're at the sort of cutting edge of this stuff, looking at water management, but also at land use to retain water from, uh, to reduce flooding, uh, to create more reservoir capacity, and particularly in places where, where the water is, is hard to get to through the conventional pipe networks and so on. So I think there's a real opportunity to, to try and bring coherence across the way um, that the government is approaching decarbonisation of the economy, because I think this has a very big p- part to play within that, working with the land users, working with the water companies and working with developers. We're bringing in you know, biodiversity net gain as a concept into planning. That's going to have very big consequences for major developments. And the water companies are at the heart of this because nature-based solutions, introducing you know, reed beds to clean up dirty water as it comes out of treatment plants, is a really big part of that. Establishing wetlands on the edge of large developments can play a really significant role. And if the regulatory regime within which these developments are consented under the new planning regulations, it's going to act as an incentive to companies that haven't been thinking about this kind of activity before to engage and you know to, to work with people like Ian and farmers like me. I should disclose an interest. I'm also a farmer who uh, last year was paid a modest amount over a certain amount of stubble fields to grow a cash crop and paid by a water company to do it. I mean, Ian, from your perspective, let me be direct. Is the way that we're currently uh, regulating the water sector and the way that we're currently regulating other sectors adjacent to, is it an enabler for the kind of system change that you're talking about? It has potential. So if I if I look at water regulation and you're looking at this at a narrow lens of water utility to start with, I think about 70% of what we do is very similar across all the companies and therefore relative comparison, relative competition is a good model. I think we face into an uncertain future 
and therefore trying to design it on the premises of the past doesn't work. And therefore, we have to have a, a look at, I think, new policy is very much called for. Um, you know, you look at the Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive, that's what drove a lot of the investment. So I think we have to have some bold policy. Water neutrality, nutrient neutrality are, are good levers in my view. Some people think not so good. I, I look at them and think it makes people think. So policy that makes you think makes you do it differently. I still think we have, have that. We don't know how to regulate for uncertainty. So we need to look at, you know, allowing for trials, allowing for experiments, allowing for a, a system of systems thinking around water. And that's where I say you have to make that break between water utility companies cannot solve this problem. We are probably, you know, 40% of the pollution problem, 40, 50% of consumption. Therefore, you have to go wider. You have to design it into a system of systems that encourages people to invest in different ways. Nature-based solutions is part of it. We can't solve storm overflows purely by nature-based solutions. But by the same token, you get to a really strange place in carbon. So if you put it all as a responsibility on water utility companies, and I'm speaking agnostic as to whether I work for one or not, then by definition, under the duties that you have, if you are to eliminate storm overflows, then you will have to build much bigger concrete boxes to capture storm water. You'll have to build much bigger treatment works and you'll have to treat, dilute water, and then you'll present it back to the environment. That's going to cost a lot of money and it's horribly carbon inefficient. So if I go back to that example of take it out in the system of systems further upstream, we can clearly see that if you can take it out of highway drainage, if you can slow it down in the catchments through uh, different forms of farming, different approaches to it, wetlands upstream, then you get to, certainly our research is showing that you get to a more cost-effective investment proposition, but you get to a significantly better carbon effective. And one of the things that I really don't want to do, and this might sound strange coming from a, a water company that gets its return from building assets, is to build assets that are unnecessary and actually damage the environment when you take it in that overall balance. So it's somehow, uh, and, and this is urgent for me, it, it's very urgent. We have got to, policy is probably not going to be able to get there in time because it takes a while for policy change. This decade is, is critical. We get past 2030 and if we haven't made the changes then it's not going to be too late because human beings are innovative and we will always try and design something in the future, but it will slow us down significantly. So I think you know we really must commit as a, a set of people who all have interlinked activities in relation to water to building a framework that allows investment to be made in the correct way to reduce carbon footprint, to enhance biodiversity. Yep, okay, would it needs concrete boxes and power and chemicals? Yep, do it. But the reality of you know things like microplastics, nutrients, they should be taken out of the system, upstream. We have an urgent challenge in front of us. It's one that we all have to address and we all have to look at it from the outcomes that we seek to deliver as well as the very specific interventions that we might want to make. I agree with that. And I think what the other confluence of events that's happened just now is that because we've got an Environment Act, which is new, setting up a new regulator, we've touched on some of the regulators, Nikki, that are already involved. We're now going to have the Office of Environmental Protection and they, I suspect, will take an interest in this. But we've also got a determination through a significant change to the policy guidance to off what the financial regulator to look at a number of these issues that Ian's been identifying so that there is a, a significant shift in emphasis 
from the heart of government through the regulator to the water companies to encourage uh, some some changes in behaviour. And that's happening at the same time as we're having these changes in regulatory opportunity for land users. So I think it's a, it's, we're in a bit of a sweet spot to make the change that Ian talks about. We've got to do it over the next decade and it's going to take more than a decade to transform everything but we absolutely got to do it now and I think the tools are now being developed to let that happen. And I'm you know very supportive Philip because I think we look to things like cover crops not only to retain soil health index through the winter but also to take excess nutrients out of the soil um, so that we don't have to put as much down in the spring you know that's just such a good idea I do query as to whether that should be in the domain of water utility companies. have got to look at that from a different perspective. Uh, I know it's helpful that water companies, and we do it as well, particularly to protect the chalk aquifer, because it makes sense. If we, if we put less nitrogen on the soil, actually our water treatment processes are more efficient, more effective. So when you add up all the pounds and pens from the different places, it works. Um, but we need to put policy framework round about that that makes that the norm rather than an exception. Uh, I think that's one of the challenges that we're all facing into just now of how, how do you measure that? I think um, cap reform, as you mentioned, is really important. It gives us a big opportunity to look at things like ELMS uh, as part of a, a water system of systems funding mechanism. And as we go into the next price review for water companies, I think multilateral funding is, is going to be really quite important because it's not really fair to ask water utility customers to pay for all of this stuff on their own we've got to find where the benefits are accrued we should be able to blend the budgets together and as I said the stuff that we've looked at has been quite exciting because it looks as if actually we can spend less money overall for better benefit and that's a that's a win-win situation for everyone. So I think this is where carbon offsetting is going to come in and sort of corporate Britain will start to contribute to some of these things and the water the water industry, because you've been doing it a bit longer than others, you've got a head start on others, you've got a lot of the relationships and you've got some of the models for doing it. So I think we're going to find, you know, whether you're a construction company putting up a building or a new housing estate somewhere and you can't put all the biodiversity net gain onto the site, that's going to generate revenue to go into other parts of the system. And one of the things I've been arguing for is that water infrastructure needs to be regarded as an essential part of national infrastructure so that if you are connecting a development to an existing drainage network and that requires capital investment, the developer needs to be in a position to contribute to that, not just the current annual connection charge. They need to be able to, and we made a recommendation about this in our Environmental Audit Committee report, that they need to be empowered to be able to contribute to the infrastructure cost so that it's not all down to the water consumer. I'm totally supportive, Philip. And I think the other things we need to look at, not just carbon, um, you know, if you look to the Sussex kelp forest, that's an enormous opportunity for nutrient sequestration. The kelp forest also protects foreshore from erosion because uh, it absorbs wave energy. Fantastic thing to do, but it has no offsetting source and policy to it. So I think we have to be looking at that. How do we encourage it? It has a contradiction. It does leave seaweed on the beach and some swimmers don't like that and some beach users don't like it. But that's easy to get round by collecting it, I think. You know, so we should be looking at that from that perspective of how do we get benefit from it. And seagrass is, is broadly the same to me. We, we've got to find opportunities. And I think that's where nutrient neutrality, water neutrality, we can extend the offsetting capability and the landscape. You know, because sea kelp has, I think it said, seven times the carbon sequestration of onshore trees. So as a company where we are, 
We don't have particularly good on the South Downs. It's not a great place for planting trees in the first place. So actually encouraging the kelp forest gives us a much greater return in terms of environmental enhancement and biodiversity. It's almost like like, everything we ever see has been done before somewhere in time. We just forgot about it along the way, didn't we? And certainly down here at the South Coast, uh, the kelp was was used as a natural fertiliser for gardens and farms as well. So yeah, we've just kind of forgotten about that, haven't we? A bit of innovation, looking back to see how we did it before, put the systems in place and and fund them so that they can actually happen. And as an optimist, I think we can make quite a big difference. It's the circular economy in action. I love it. Chaps, it's been an absolute joy to hear from both of you. Thank you so much for sharing your views. Some of my takeaways really about are around that kind of system of systems change that we talked about, around harnessing the power of the public interest, I think really. I think there's, it's a really good thing that the public are interested, certainly the role of nature and the opportunity that we've got to help to let nature help us I think really in terms of things like nature-based solutions but the big takeaway for me really is is around the importance of innovative thinking and particularly around innovative finance as well and the opportunity for things like green finance to really come and help catalyze some of that big change that we need not just within the water sector but in that systems type approach so a fascinating conversation thank you so much for joining us what a great way to start this season of Planet Possible thank you both thank you thanks Nikki Okay, Al, so what are your initial reflections on the interview? Ian and Philip know this subject matter in enormous detail, and so it's great to have two people with that level of expertise. I think it really shone a light on what is possible. Given as Ian is from a a water industry background, let's, let's take that first. Really sort of shone a light on what water companies can enable. They get to spend an awful lot of money, invest an awful lot of money on solutions, And there are other parts of this kind of system where there's not half so much money available to chuck at the problem. But the range of possibilities, you know, going to seagrass and kelp, the carbon sequestration, you you kind of think, is that really what a water company would be doing? But but why not? You know, I think we really need to be imaginative about this. So on that note, very optimistic, you know, the breadth of thinking, I think there is a but. and, And that that was that I didn't really feel we acknowledged maybe where we haven't valued water enough in the past, possibly where we've neglected water mm-hmm. a bit too much. So I really think that there's been an emphasis over the last decade and more on keeping water bills low mm. for customers. And that's been politically led as much as anything. And it is understandable that, that decision makers, politicians and decision makers do not want to put bills up if they have to. But what that has meant is... Because of the way that the water industry has been regulated, farming has been regulated, some of those costs that are involved in managing that water properly have not been fully reflected in terms of the investment and the regulatory requirements that have been demanded of those sectors. Mm. That situation is changing now. We've got the Environment Agency and Ofwat really turning the thumbscrews on, on water companies all of a sudden. But... You could, if you were so minded, argue that that's a little bit like bolting the stable door, you know, once the horse is... Bolted? Bolted. <laughs> uh, shutting the stable door. I'm, I'm not a horse person. So. <laughs> yeah, so I think I, I wholeheartedly support good, robust regulation. And actually, I think a lot of these, uh, the, the water companies and, and a lot of farmers, they would be happy to take this level of of regulation. What they want is consistency. In all my time working in this sector, this is what 
organisations have said almost we don't mind what the regulations are or how tough they are as long as we've got a level playing field and also enough time to plan against. Mm -hmm. But we've been saying for, for years, decades, that water is undervalued. And I think the challenge with some of these problems now is there's all these this clamour for spending really large sums of money yeah. on solutions over a very short time scale and making very rapid progress. But we really should have been thinking about this a little bit more deeply in the past. The good thing is some of those received wisdoms around not really needing to think about the wider implications of doing certain activities on water and on our environment the mentalities there are changing yeah. and I think the importance of a healthy water environment is increasingly recognised. The range of benefits that that delivers mm. are increasingly appreciated, not before time. I think people are objectively starting to value the environment more. The challenge will be, are we prepared to pay for it and who's prepared to pay, I think, possibly. Yeah, and I think Ian made a really good point around one of the sets of solutions there that he was talking about, which I think was taking highway runoff out of, I guess, a, a sewage catchment. And he said taking 40% of runoff out of the combined system would sort out their problems mm. in that particular catchment with storm overflows. If you think about how that could be done, that equates in that particular area to a lot of green infrastructure being retrofitted into the existing built landscape. I think what people will see and really experience in their day-to-day -day lives is, is the green infrastructure that we can retrofit mm. into existing urban landscapes to take that kind of highway runoff out of combined networks. Yeah, you get the reduction in CSOs, but you also get a far nicer place yeah. to live. And that's brilliant. And that's why I think it, it was a quite an in inspiring discussion. So what are the key next steps from what you heard and what you know of the wider landscape? There's two absolute imperatives to me. One is we have to make sure, and if, as far as agricultural diffuse pollution is concerned, we have the environmental land management scheme being developed now post-Brexit. We have to make that into a mechanism whereby farmers and land managers are properly paid to deliver the services that we need them to deliver in upper catchments to achieve good water quality further downstream. That is a, a benefit that we all benefit from mm -hmm. in, in society. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be paying for it. If the payment mechanism is through some kind of subsidy scheme, it's got to be the vehicle to achieve a lot of this improvement. Likewise, on the, the water industry side, I think we just need to see the kind of tone that has been expressed in recent policy documents that was expressed in the environmental audit committee's report recently that seems to be coming out from from water companies in advance of the plans that they'll be publishing soon on storm overflows on drainage that needs to be carried forward over the next in, round of investment there are some really really interesting schemes being taken forward by water companies i mean there's one by seven trent in mansfield mm -hmm. this was a, a green recovery scheme they are taking forward 80-odd million pounds SUDS retrofit scheme to retrofit 15,000 SUDS interventions into Mansfield and its surrounds to help tackle flooding. The thing that strikes me with that is that's a huge yeah. number. That huge really number is, isn't it? Wow. Of SUDS interventions yeah. to put into an existing urban landscape. They've got to do that in about three years. 
I can't wait to see what it looks yeah. like on the ground because yeah. if that's successful, and I, you know, I think there's no reason to think that it won't be, it will then be replicated mm. very widely by other water companies. Now, I said this, this is a flood-driven mm. scheme, but within that scheme, they know that there are going to be associated benefits mm. to storm overflows, but they're going to monitor the outcomes. Those kind of schemes could equally be delivered to a water quality outcome. What we could do, and just coming back to a point that Ian made around we can do these things cost effectively, mm-hmm. he also said that we should be looking to try and pull resources to, to combine funding streams. If you can take surface water flood funding generally and funding that is made available to improve water quality, then we can surely get efficiency wins there it has to happen but i'm not sure the funding schemes are set up and measured in a way that makes that as easy as it could yeah that sort of system of systems approach that ian talked about is great in principle but i'm not sure the mechanisms are there to to deliver some of it i guess at the moment just on next steps on that funding front i think Mm. we need to work out have a have a good look at the funding streams see how they can be complementary, how the the different organisations involved can really be brought together to work together as Mm. effectively as possible and and make best use of the funds that they each have to uh, deliver win-wins. Yeah, that's a great summary point, Al. I think funding needs to really recognise the interconnections and those multiple benefits across our water system, doesn't it? So as a final point, where's SIOM's energy on this topic? What, What are you doing on it at the moment? Well, we've been working to dig into all of these different factors that that have an influence on storm overflows in particular. And we really wanted to see where you could have the best, most effective impacts on on the wider system and and achieve the the best outcomes. So we're publishing a report quite soon around Easter time, and it will really shine a light on areas where we can make improvements from, you know, an urban planning perspective, from a highways management perspective, consumer products and consumer behaviours, around flood risk management and how that joins into this whole piece and of course all of the different things that the water industry can do brilliant cywem website i'm guessing uh, it will be on the cywem website Cywem.org. social feeds and so on. perfect brilliant cywem.org to look out for that after sort of towards the end of april brilliant time has flown by as usual here we are at the end of the first episode thank you so much for joining us i hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as i have you found it insightful maybe it's given you something to think about in your world You can subscribe to the pod on your usual podcast player to make sure you never miss an episode. And we'd love to hear your ratings and reviews too. I'm really looking forward to sharing the rest of the season with you. So all that leaves me to say is a huge thank you to our guest today, the Right Honourable Philip Dunn MP and Ian McCauley and my excellent co-host Al. Always a pleasure. Always. Thanks everybody. That's it for now. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Planet Possible is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.